Hello, my name is Philip Mirton, and today we are going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, the topic of today's show is, Does Death Make Life Possible? Humankind, it seems, has a preoccupation with death, including whether it can be postponed, what comes after death, what happens when it occurs, and whether it is even necessary. Now, our preoccupation with death and the afterlife can be shown by a lot of things, but one of them is simply by plugging the words life after death into Amazon, and I got 65,000 results. The number of books, by the way, with the, with the words life after death in them are almost countless. Now, the reason why death may be such a big topic is because most of us would prefer not to intrude upon our lives, and second, because everyone who has ever lived has died. But I'd like to start this show by referring to an excerpt from the great Indian epic poem, the Mahaparabha, that talks about two brothers who are exiled to a forest, thirsting. A voice comes out of the woods and starts asking the brothers questions. But one by one, the brothers are too thirsty. They drink the water and die without answering the questions. But then, the last brother, Yudhisthra, chooses to answer the questions of the voice. And one of the questions is, of all the world's wonders, which is the most wonderful? And he answers, that no man, though he sees others dying all around him, believes he himself will not die. The brothers are brought back to life, and it turns out that the voice was that of God. So if death is inevitable, which, by the way, I do not think is necessarily true, I do think that it may help to learn from it. Now, fortunate to have uh, as our guest today, Marilyn Schlitz, um, who is the ambassador of creative projects and global affairs for the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where she has worked in various roles for about 18 years. Her work focuses on cross-cultural healing, transformation, and consciousness studies. She has given lectures, conducted workshops, and taught all around the world. She received her PhD in anthropology from the University of Texas at Austin and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in social psychology at Stanford University. She has been featured in various writings, interviews, and videos. Uh, also, she has authored and co-authored numerous books and articles, including the books Living Deeply, the Art of Science of Transformation, and Consciousness and Healing, Integral Approaches to Mind-Body Medicine. Now, she's also hard at work on a book and documentary with the provocative title, Death Makes Life Possible, Bridging Consciousness, Science, and Spirits. Welcome to the show, Maryland. Thank you. Beautiful intro. Well, it's, it's, it's great having you here. 
work on your book and in the materials that are available right now, uh, there seems to be this preoccupation with death and the afterlife right now. Uh, what do you attribute that to? Well, I think it's both um, a fascination with the idea of our own immortality. Uh, there's also a big denial in our culture around death, and so a tremendous amount of fear and I would say aberrant behaviors, behaviors that are not necessarily uh, health-inducing as a result of our denial of death. So um, there is right now, I think, a tension in our culture between materialism, uh, the ideas of science that we are nothing but our physical uh, matter, our identity is a byproduct of our brain, and then this call for meaning that comes as people are exploring their spiritual essence, uh, the idea that perhaps our identity, our consciousness, uh, our soul transcends beyond the physical. And so there's this kind of tension, I think, that exists in modern culture uh, that is being played out as we look at all these books around out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, reincarnation. Um, all of those hold a fascination for us because it is the big question mark that is going to uh, impact each and every one of us. Yeah, you know, it really, it really is an amazing thing because we're living in a time where, where I would say that we have these two trajectories going on. We have the trajectory of, of modern science, uh, which, which I believe is based upon materialism. And then we have this trajectory of the spiritual awareness. We have this growth in consciousness studies. I mean, your own institute, which we'll be talking about a little bit, is, as I call it, the leading science spirituality research institute in the u.s so we have these two trajectories going on here and we have a lot of people trying to find common ground between science and spirituality and sort of trying to figure out if there's some kind of unity some kind of reconciliation and i think that death you know the concept of death is sort of like this this giant bump in the road that that neither that, that neither area, science or spirituality, has really come to terms with. Uh, and, and so, and so um, for example, the, the, the preoccupation or the incredible interest we're seeing right now in these books with heaven in the title, uh, and is, is that something that, that you find is, is part of this growing spiritual awareness, or, or, or what do you attribute that to? Um, I think that people have a desire to understand what happens next. Are we just here for a finite time, or does our identity, our personality, our soul, in some way transcend the physical and therefore have some capacity for an afterlife? And we know that all of the world's uh, religions and spiritual traditions have some body of um, understanding around this. I, I think that some of the books, um, Proof of Heaven, for example, by Evan Alexander, is number one at the New York Times bestselling list because uh, he is um, a composite in a certain way of uh, a neuroscientist who has had a very successful career and was very much seeped in the objective scientific framework. Uh, believed that consciousness was something simply a uh, byproduct of the brain, that if we can figure out the neural wirings of the brain, we would figure out what it means to be human. And he had a, a near-death experience that kept him in coma for about a month. 
And in that time, he had a very powerful, what I'm going to call noetic or direct intuitive experience of something beyond his physical being. And he believes, based on his experience, that he you know, encountered angels and had um, experiences in the heavenly realm. And that when he woke up from the coma, it had such a profound impact on him that it has changed everything about the way he lives his life, his, his own metaphysic, his understanding of himself, his understanding of his relationships. So these experiences can be profound and transformative for people, um, whether or not it's true. And um, and so that's an interesting sort of little question mark to put in there is what does it take to provide evidence that there is something beyond our physical being and how can science help us to understand that? Yeah, and, and for those uh, who aren't real familiar with the Proof of Heaven book, it, his uh, article or his uh, book was highlighted on the cover of Newsweek in October 2012, the the, the cover story was heaven is real and and we've talked about this a little bit on this show and some folks are pointing out that the that the reason why uh eden alexander's uh, book has done so well is because he was and maybe still is uh a a member of the of the of the scientific orthodoxy which which traditionally would would dismiss stories about life after death and, and I think that I think what what makes it so compelling is that you sort of have um, a transition or 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 a revelation that this orthodox materialistic scientist has about a, a, a afterlife experience. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I did as I as I was preparing for this show is to read up a little bit on on, on Eastern. Uh, philosophy and it, it just it just strikes me that the difference in the ways to truth you know the way to truth from the the hinduistic uh method or the eastern method is this inward search where science tends to be objective outgoing and i think it's it's refreshing when when the scientists the objective minded uh, of the crowd have these inner experiences that they know to be true Take it you've you've interviewed a number of people that have had these life after death experiences. We have so the um, the film Death Makes Life Possible is an exploration really grounded in my own personal experience, uh, beginning before I can even remember. At about eighteen months old, I swallowed lighter fluid, mm -hmm. and it put me into the intensive care unit in and out for about three months and. It was during that time that I think something in my unconscious mind um, helped me to understand the power of healing and that semi-permeable place between living and dying. And so the, the story for the documentary is drawn out of my own personal exploration as a scientist, as an anthropologist, and as a personal seeker, really trying to answer these questions for myself. Um, you know, why do we die and what happens after? So in that process, I went out and, and met with people, remarkable people from many different walks of life. So 
uh, heard from people like Evan Alexander about his uh, near-death experience. Uh, Daniel Brinkley had a very profound and very paralleled experience to what Evan Alexander describes, you know, leaving the body, being up on a ceiling, looking down at himself, using that as an opportunity to then explore other realms of um, consciousness or experience. All of these are very provocative. I then went in and explored a lot of the different spiritual and religious traditions. So uh, some of the indigenous wisdom, Tony Redhouse, for example, is a Navajo hoop dancer who does a lot of work uh, at hospice. So he comes and he sings and he plays and he drums for people as they're dying. And he believes that that helps the soul to make the journey uh, across the the semi-permeable divide that leads us into another realm of spirit. Uh, Louisa Tish comes from the African diaspora, and she talks about how there are guides on the other side that she believes are there to help us make the transition. Uh, and so those were fascinating, and we were able to participate in ritual with them and to explore what is their cosmology, what is their worldview, and how does that provide some answers, at least for them, uh, about this great mystery. Uh, We also went in and talked to people from um, the Abrahamic traditions, so Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Islam is very interesting because they see the life that we're living now as really temporary and that the real life comes after. And so, you know, the idea that Uh, What happens when we die is kind of the wrong question to be asking within that tradition because this is really the temporary and everything else is is where the action is. Uh, Christianity, obviously, we know about the notions of heaven and hell. Uh, Lauren Artris, who's the uh, minister at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, um, gave us just an eloquent uh, overview of how Christianity holds this notion of reward or punishment following life. And so really the need to be of service and to do good work while we're embodied uh, becomes a kind of moral code. And the idea then is that there is some consequence on the other side. Uh, these, these cosmologies help people to manage their lives and, and guide their, their actions and their, their values, their morals. Um, We also uh, interviewed scientists. We looked at um, some of the research that's going on to attempt to document whether consciousness can survive bodily death. Uh, There's a study that's underway right now at the Institute of Noetic Sciences looking at mediumship. So what's going on in the bodies and brains of these mediums who believe they can communicate with the dead? And are there differences in their brains when they're right as compared to when they're wrong based on uh, a sitter's evaluation? Uh, So, you know, there's no way in a definitive form to know whether they're right or wrong, but you can look for corroboration based on what the sitter, the person who's asking the questions, feels were relevant topics. So it's kind of an interesting blend of looking at a very old practice, mediumship and the communication with spirits, with then neuroscience and trying to understand what's happening in the bodies and brains of these people. We also had a really stimulating conversation with um, Peter Fenwick, who is a psychiatrist in London and who has worked for decades 
on not only uh, near-death experiences, but death experiences. So being at the bedside as people are dying and watching the patterns of how they seem to connect to someone as though there's a guide who's coming in, the old auntie or the parents or a child who's there before them and can help them make that transition. Uh, so those are all areas that we have a strong interest in. And then then there's the health issue. Um, regardless of the truth or falsity of these worldviews, does it help us live our lives more fully? And I think the answer is unequivocally yes. It uh, appears that people, when they are able to maturely integrate the idea of their own mortality, uh, are less anxious. Uh, they seem less uh, defensive. Whereas people who haven't had a chance to really process their own death and the inevitability of their mortality seem more anxious. Uh, they're more likely to criticize people whose worldviews are different from their own. Uh, and I think it's probably a factor in leading to a lot of the kind of conflict we face as a civilization. People just are fearful and therefore defensive and therefore reacting out in the world. So we're really interested in all of this and are um, engaging in, you know, both creating this documentary that we uh, hope to have out. We're um, looking at late spring, early summer for release of the documentary. Uh, the book will come shortly after. Uh, we're also doing research and looking at um, how nurses can deal with their patients whose worldviews may be fundamentally different from their own if they go through a training program. And so we're looking to see if um, they can become less defensive about other people's worldviews as well as their own as it relates to what people think is going to happen after they die. And does that make them better caregivers is really what we're looking at. Well, uh, uh, first of all, this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Marilyn Schlitz of the Institute of Noetic Sciences about her upcoming book and documentary um, entitled Death Makes Life Possible. Uh, stay tuned as we're going to be continuing to talk about this incredibly intriguing question including the different types of heaven experiences that we might uh, one day have. Now now Marilyn, uh, you said a, a lot there and there's a lot of really interesting deep uh, points that you're making. Uh, the one that I, I think that bears sort of some emphasis is is what you mentioned about uh, what I would call the moral code, the eightfold path, karma. Uh, I know that in in one of your uh, excerpts you talk about Rupert Sheldrake's comment about how uh, the afterlife is sort of uh, a dream in which in which we live the life that uh, that reflects our thoughts and emotions during our lifetime. Uh, and and all that seems to have this common element uh, which revolves and maybe has its source in in Eastern mysticism uh, with with the concept of reincarnation and and so and and what I want to emphasize here is that is that all the religions seem to emphasize the moral conduct as leading to a better afterlife and I'm wondering whether you you saw whether you've seen any any similarities in the way these religions 
you know, the various religions, the Eastern and Western religions, are, are using morality to sort of determine what goes on after death. Well, I, I think you're raising a really provocative question about how these cosmologies of the afterlife really inform how we live our lives. Uh, Louisa Tisch, who uh, is um, a priestess from a uh, African tradition, and she talks about how um, she's more concerned about an unfulfilled life than what happens after. So how is it that we can inform our lives with all the richness and integrity that um, we can muster uh, for no other reason than to live a good life? And then to begin to explore what are the, the consequences of that for things like, as you said, karma or um, reincarnation, hell, heaven, purgatory. Um, in the Islamic tradition, it's uh, very interesting that there's a kind of predetermination and uh, a judgment. And so the judgment will take you to uh, different levels of heaven. So there are different ways in which how you have conducted your life on this plane will affect how you conduct your life later. There's also some really fascinating social psychology uh, work coming out now looking at people's behaviors if they think there's consciousness beyond the body or that we're nothing but a, you know, a bundle of neurons. Right. And so, for example, Jonathan Schooler, who's a professor at the University of California in Santa Barbara, has done some work where if people journal about their own mortality, what do they think is going to happen when they die, and then they're given um, a little reading, and the reading says um, consciousness is vast, it is all, we are all fundamentally interconnected, um, nothing dies, nothing is born, it is all one seamless continuum, versus if they read something that says we're nothing but a machine, and there is no free will, there is no autonomy. Uh, and then he gives them the opportunity to play a game where they can cheat, but they don't know that they can cheat. So it's um, uh, a tacit test. And anyway, what they find is that people are significantly more likely to cheat if, in fact, they think that they have no free will and that we're nothing but uh, a bag of bones. Right. Whereas we tend to be more moral and more responsible if, in fact, we believe that consciousness is something that continues beyond. So these things have very interesting social consequences. Um, not only is it interesting as an anthropologist to look at these different worldviews and, and the, the richness and complexity of them, but also to really think about how it impacts how we live together and how we conduct our behaviors. Yeah, I, and I think you said something very important there, which I'm a big uh, student of, and that is the difference between having a mechanical, materialistic outlook and having this consciousness, unity, uh, spiritual outlook. And and it, I, it's intriguing that that little test or experiment you summarized goes to that dichotomy in the context of, of, of death and, and how one perceives their journey through time because, because we need, you know, there's this need for this, for this something other, for this greater purpose, for this uh, web of life or being. 
And I almost think that there's some of that in, in this afterlife, at least from the materialistic perspective, which is that, and this is why I, I read that little story from, from the um, Indian poem in the beginning. There's something, I think, that's eternal or in us. There's, there's something in us that strives for immortality. If, if we're faced with a dead end on this planet, then it seems to me that inner spirit we have sort of, sort of spills out and asks for something more. It's like we would each be players in this big story where we each try to contribute a part to making a better future. If not for us individually, then, then for uh, God itself or the, or the one spirit. I think that that's sort of where things are heading. Now, most of us grew up in a sort of mechanical worldview, and I, I call that the default worldview, and it's based upon realism. And I know, Marilyn, you have a philosophy degree, too, so I'm sure you're, you're up on this, the, you know, the concept of, of naive realism and realism generally. But we're brought up in this, in this culture based upon this mechanical worldview where we have short lives, and then we die and we dissolve into dust and we get buried in the earth and that's it. And then we have these hopes and dreams, uh, perhaps, of there being an afterlife. I think what's happening now with this evolution of science and, and, and particularly physics with quantum theory is that, is that the, the separation between spiritualism and physics is, is decreasing they're coming closer to each other. We're starting to see that there's more of this uh, inner inner feeling, inner power we have that's, that's that feels a lot like a like a spiritual thing as opposed to uh, a machine. And it's starting to, I think, open eyes over well, what really does happen at that moment of death. And and so I think that's I think it's it's a really exciting development. Uh, one of the things that uh, when I was reading your materials from uh, Lee Lipsenthal, who, who had this, I think you attributed a quote to him uh, in your film about modern culture is focused on eternal youth and sees people who age and die as losers. I, I really thought that was a telling sort of statement because, and it goes back to how I started the show, that, that many of us start life thinking we're never going to die. And, 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 and I still see that in youth. I mean, I, I think it's, frankly, I think it is a, a, uh, a good state of mind. I think it's a positive state of mind. But, but there's something about maybe it's modern culture or these kids these days are not being constrained by what their parents or culture t has told them. And, and so, and I don't know whether you see... Whether, whether you've seen that or whether you would take the view or they're just fooling themselves or whether death is really something you care more about as you get older, <laughs> as it comes closer. So, so what do you think about Lee's, Lee Lip Lipsenthal's uh, comment here about modern culture? Yeah, I think Lee um, was a fabulous uh, spokesperson, physician, uh, and an insightful person whose book, uh, Enjoy Every Sandwich, really epitomizes the philosophy that he'd had um, prior to his death and knowing that he was dying, he was writing this book to help other people embrace life. And there is a huge taboo in our culture. We are fixated on, you know, eternal youth. 
And I think that what he said is, is true, um, particularly in our culture, in you know, American culture, that we you know, really want to always you know, be flawless and always be young. And um, you know, people hire for the youth. They recruit for the youth. And so there is a way in which we have now to redefine what conscious aging is about. And that's another program area that I'm very interested in uh, as the boomers begin to age. And, you know, as boomers are, they want to do things differently. They want to be, you know, the innovators. And so even aging is being redefined with this new demographic. Uh, So I think that that's all very true. We interviewed a number of young people, uh, kids, you know, nine years old and up for the film and uh, found some brilliant wisdom from these young people. Uh, They do think about death. They have experienced it, whether it's the loss of an animal or a grandparent, in some cases parents, uh, and wanting to think about where did they go? What happened to them? Can I stay connected to my kitty cat? Um, I heard some of the most brilliant observations and some of the most humorous because they have such innocence. Um, a young uh, 12-year-old said, you know, I've always wondered what happens when we die, and I just haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> you know, and it's just yeah. such a light relief in the film yeah. to hear that kind of just curiosity without dogmatism. Um, so I think young people are aware. I think there's a lot of fear today for young people. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion, lack of direction. Um, I think if you listen to the music that is playing, I mean, I have a 14-year-old, and I can tell you it's frightening some of what they're being exposed to. Uh, You know, there's one very popular song right now, you know, Live Like You're Gonna Die Young. Yeah. Well, it's sad to think that, you know, young people have this kind of carelessness. Well, well, that that reminds me, you know, the Taylor, I think it was a Taylor Swift song, um, if I die young, put the roses on my grave or something. I'm thinking this this woman is, what, uh, 20 years old or something, and she's mm-hmm. writing this song about dying young. I mean, it's a little on the pessimistic side. I I, I, uh, I don't know what to make out of it. I See, I tend to be extremely radical on this topic. I mean, I, I've been waiting at some point to to bring this up, but... I think that we are in the, in this stage of development or growth or evolution of consciousness, and and to me, uh, I don't think death is inevitable, and I don't think you could say death is inevitable, uh, consistent with quantum theory, because because we and, and this this is this is the problem. The problem is is that quantum theory tells us that what we think is the external world, the self-operating little world of particles, of atoms, is not really there. And it, depending on who you talk to, whether it's Amika Swami, Deepak Chopra, um, or Bruce Lipton, or many others, the consciousness definitely plays a role in the formation of reality. It's some role. And that would include our bodies. And so when we say that death is inevitable, we're really saying that there's something outside of consciousness that is controlling the way we, 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 we grow. And, and so I don't think that it is inevitable. And I told you it was, it was, I'm radical on this topic, but, but I, I like this open-minded, unlimited sort of uh, aspiration that anything is possible. And if you fail, you fail. 
But but one of the things that I, I and I think Bruce Lipton is on this point, and I I agree with him. He was on the show a couple months ago, uh, as was Rupert Sheldrake, by the way. But I asked Bruce Lipton the question about well, you know, he wrote the book Biology of Belief, and I said, well, does this belief system also apply to to living and death? And he said yes, that that we're only limited by our beliefs. And so, so I, this is where I part company with, with some of this. I don't, I think that we owe it to ourselves to grow with consciousness, to grow with awareness. I also agree that we need to deal with, with what looks like the reality of death. But I also think that we have to be very open-minded and make sure that we don't cut ourselves short. So I told you, Marilyn, I'm radical on this topic. But but I think it's I think it's important to understand that some of us out there, it's not many of us, but but I do think that to be consistent with quantum theory, you can't say that the body uh, is operating on its own power apart from the mind. Um, so well, my my co-producer for the film is Deepak Chopra, yeah. and uh, that's certainly his metaphysic is nothing you know nothing nothing's born nothing dies and. He doesn't see the contrast between living and dying. He sees it, uh, the contrast being between being born and dying, right. and that it's all the continuum of life, and that with consciousness, um, there is no, this is sort of a, a temporary embodiment. <clears throat> I think that those are all, you know, really perfectly valid perspectives. Uh, I think one of the areas that is intriguing to me you know, and picking up on your earlier question about Rupert Sheldrake talking about dreaming, um, the whole lucid dreaming area is very uh, well-developed in Buddhism and Hinduism, and there is also a science base to it. Uh, one of the people I interviewed is um, Fariba Bogzaran, who is uh, a lucid art um, practitioner, and she does lucid dreaming. And so the idea there is when we sleep, uh, many traditions believe that some kind of soul or essence leaves the body, can travel around, um, commune with the spirit world. And so dreaming becomes like the rehearsal or the practice place for, for dying and what happens after. Uh, one of the projects that Fariba did was to invite lucid dreamers when they became lucid, when they woke up and realized in the dream that they were dreaming uh, and therefore had control over the content of the dream, to um, become one with the divine. And when they woke up, she asked them if they'd been successful, and they said yes, and she asked them to describe the experience, and they said, wow. <laughs> and from a scientific point of view, she didn't have much data to work with. Yeah. <laughs> they just didn't yeah. have a language or a yeah. vocabulary to describe the essence of the experience. So she took them to sit in front of these huge canvases, uh, people like Gordon Onslow Ford, who uh, is a surrealist, and he had painted, and others in that school, these images of the transpersonal and um, the divine, as it were. And so suddenly, these lucid dreamers were sitting in front of these huge canvases, looking at a kind of exteriorization of their inner experience. Mm. So where they didn't have a language to describe their own dream experience, somehow seeing these paintings gave them a vocabulary. 
and they were able to, by analogy, describe the nature of their own experiences as it related to the paintings. So it's a very interesting yeah. thing that, you know, part of what limits us is that we don't have the vocabulary, we don't have the cultural support to really explore a lot of these mystical states. Uh, and I think that, you know, clearly as people are uh, curious about their own mortality or not, as they're curious about the nature of their consciousness and and the, the line between the conscious and the unconscious, which is fascinating, uh, I think this lucid dreaming kind of practice can become very powerful and very potent for people. That's a that's a good that's a good example and and again this is Philip Mirton this is conversations beyond science and religion we're talking with Marilyn Schlitz the the uh, co-producer and author of a new book and documentary with the same title coming out soon called Death Makes Life Possible uh, I want to I want to get back to something that is important here that we tend to forget about. And, and is also sort of one of these inconsistencies we have in, I, in the modern mindset, in my view. And that is, what are we? we uh, you know, Descartes, uh, the French philosopher in the 17th century, you know, had his meditation and he, he asked himself, well, what is he really? And he came down to the answer that he's a thinking being, that he's a mind. And that, of course, would be the same conclusion that Eastern philosophy, Hinduism, would come to, that at essence we are a mind. When we think about death, though, we, we immediately transfer the conversation to our body. We think that we're really a body. Well, if we're really a mind, then, uh, then, then the picture starts changing. And, and, I, and I wanted to raise that point because, it, to me, it shows that I would agree with you that we're undergoing a transition in stories. I like your, your, you know, the way you put it earlier in the show about we're between stories. We're sort of moving from, in my own words, a mechanical mindset, materialistic mindset, to a spiritual mindset, and we're trying to understand the new story. And, and so I think that that is you know part of the excitement of living this era that we're in you 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 put it nicely that with the internet the easy access to these ancient ancient texts wikipedia uh people like you and deepak and bruce lipton and uh rupert sheldrake and my own book the heaven at the end of science by the way I also have a a placeholder on this topic uh there's a lot of open-minded people taking different perspectives on things and it and it's really made this field I think exciting uh, and I, I think we're lucky to you know to be around during this time period so so at the end of the day Marilyn uh, what 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 is the most important thing you could tell us now about what you've learned from working on the film Death Makes Life Possible. What, what, what would you tell folks about the, the lessons that you've learned about this incredibly important episode in most of our lives? Well, it's a clear pain point for people. And uh, I've learned that there is a lot of interest, but there's also a lot of denial. Yeah. I'm not sure this is going to become the um, most popular film in history because, <laughs> you know, on a Friday night, is that, you know, do we want to go see death or yeah. do we want to see some funny, you know, comedy? 
so it's a serious program, but I have found that particularly amongst, you know, healthcare practitioners, nurses, hospice workers, caregivers, there is great passion and interest and fascination around all of this uh, and really a lack of, you know, rigorous work on these different cosmologies as it relates to dying. So I feel that we are offering a contribution to something that um, there is curiosity about as well as, as I said, pain. I think people suffer around some of these questions and to the extent that the film and the book and the course that we're offering starting next week, actually a six week telecourse called death makes life possible through the Institute of noetic sciences. Um, my hope is that we can help to speak to that pain point, really help people to find some language uh, to explore their own fears, their own curiosities, uh, their excitement. Uh, talking to somebody like Lee Lipsenthal as he was dying, um, you know, he was he was excited. He was curious. It was like the next big adventure. And so how to help people see this as a win, not a loss, uh, is I think really the, the biggest contribution that I can offer. And I, I think if people want to track the um, the film and our progress, uh, the website noetic.org is a is a good place. I'm launching a new website myself um, in the next couple of weeks, and I'll be blogging pretty regularly there as well. Uh, and Twitter, I'm on Twitter all the time, uh, Marilyn Schlitz. And uh, so I post little things that can lead people to resources, uh, um, you know, conversations with fascinating people. So I guess I would just say that I have been um, pleasantly surprised by the warmth and openness that people have had. And finally, I think my position about where we're headed as a civilization and what the new worldview might be, uh, it isn't one or the other. I think that our capacity to hold the paradox of it being a both-and is really where we need to be. Uh, you can think about the fact that um, a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, an atheist are all using the same grocery stores, the same schools, the same hospitals. How is it that we're operating in these unique, different worldviews and simultaneously? I think the the challenge for the 21st century is really how can we develop a kind of meta framework that allows us to hold these different possibilities and in that process to come more clearly to understanding what is true for each of us. Well, that's, well, that's very well put. And, I, and I'd like to um, recommend that the listeners check out Marilyn's website and the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Uh, she's provided uh, how, how you could uh, view the trailer. And I think it's, it's extremely important to take new views of things of important topics the big questions like death like life after death with this new mindset with this open mindset that we're all uh, trying to develop uh, I go back to how I started this show with with that with the question raised in that ancient Sanskrit poem that no man though he sees others dying all around him believes that he himself will die and I think that our mindset sort of uh, determines how we view that question does that question mean that 
that we're fooling ourselves into thinking that that death is inevitable or is there something internal in all of us that is waiting for expression I, I like to think the latter as I said I like to think that there's something eternal in in us that makes that the question this question about why do so many people believe that we will not die that that there is hope that that uh, can occur now maybe that's wrong but I think it leads to a more optimistic viewpoint this world remember includes our bodies and maybe the only thing leading us to believe in death is our belief itself this is Philip Merton this is conversations beyond science and religion thank you for listening and thank you very much Marilyn for a great conversation thank you you've been listening to conversations beyond science and religion with Philip Merton to find out more about Philip and his new book the heaven at the end of science visit heaven at the end of science.com